Dear young African, in the words of Marcus Garvey, a people without the knowledge of their past history, origin and culture is like a tree without roots. Welcome to Dear Young African with me, Nana Fredia Ajamai. In this podcast, we have only one message for the young African listening. Don't give up. Your excuses are valid, but so are your dreams. And this is the place to come to when you need to remind yourself of that truth. In this podcast, we will be speaking to those Africans who keep going to inspire others to do same. So dear young African, if you're listening, this is for you. Hello, podcast family. Welcome to part two of last week's episode on the topic, is Pan-Africanism a scam? I know Pan-Africanism is something that is close to the hearts of many young Africans or Africans in general. And this question is quite a contentious one, but trust me, there is a lot of value in listening to opinions that do not necessarily correlate with the opinion that you have formed over the years. This is the part two of the conversation and if you missed part one, please go back and check it out because it is a continuation of uh, part one. I would love to hear your thoughts to this as a listener, so please do email me at dearyoungafrican at gmail.com. That is dearyoungafrican, African with a K and not a C. If you are on Facebook and Instagram, please do follow us at dearyoungafrican, African again with a K and not a C. Help us spread the word about the podcast so that other young Africans can find us. That's it from me. Enjoy the episode. Things that are coming up, like, you know, the African continental free trade area, those things, those, those things that are coming up, I would say are coming up because we are beginning to see the essence or we are continuing to see the essence of, you know, one Africa coming together. If Africa cannot organize have 54 countries come together or 55 countries come together how then do we build economic power because economic power also comes with the numbers doesn't it china is 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 powerful because you know it's 1.3 billion people and uh so many other reasons so that is why i i i i struggle to also agree with you when you say you do not see the essence of pan-africanism because i think that these new things that are coming up are coming up out of the spirit of pan-africanism would you not agree okay so i'll ask you a question first okay go ahead try and eliminate this okay so i will i will uh situate the strategy of multiple countries coming together for trade and business interest as geopolitics okay yeah. If you'll allow me, can we can we can we summarize that under the vague term geopolitics? Is sure, let's right? go ahead. So, and then I'll ask you: Did Pan-Africanism invent geopolitics? In in the definition that you have given, I think Pan-Africanism is partly responsible for it because it was Pan-Africanism is that idea that we all have a shared concern, and so we should come together and address it. So that is why I would say, based on the way you define geopolitics in this context, I would say it was that movement that allowed Kwame Nkrumah or, you know, those African thinkers to say, well, if you're going through the same situation that I'm going through, why don't we come together and address the, the, the problem that we're all going through? Okay. Let me give you an example 
Okay. Uh, practical example uh, from Uganda that hopefully will help you see where I'm coming from. Okay. So Yoweri Museveni uh, has been president of uh, Uganda since 1986. Okay. So that's 14 plus now this is 22. So that's a lot of years. <laughs> okay. So he's been president for 36 years. Yes. Uh, in the conference in, I think, 2000, uh, forgive me, viewers, anybody who hears me say this, and then you go and research and you find a different date, please forgive me. <laughs> uh, it happened. It's in that range. Uh, the Pan-African con- uh, Congress in 2003 was held in Uganda, and Yoweri Museven played a critical role. Uh, he gave a massive speech about around it and talked about how Africans need to come together. Yeah. Okay. Now, what you may not find, or you may, depending on your research interests, is the brutality of the brutality and the ruthlessness. Mm. Uh, actually, it's three things: the brutality, the ruthlessness, and the strategic poise of Museveni's regime. Okay, and I know this because I had the very great uh, pleasure and opportunity to host. Uh, uh, one of his long-term opponents, uh, Dr. Kiza Besije, uh, in a, it was a group setting while we discussing the place of the human rights conversation and human rights uh, movement in Africa. Yeah. And we hosted, we hosted uh, Dr. Kiza Besije for dinner, and he explained. He talked about his journey. He talked about where he came, where he came from, and uh, how his journey intersected with Uganda's journey, and what are the prospects for the future. And it was uh, a. a profound conversation, but I'll just narrow to some few elements that brought out the picture quite clearly. Museveni has played a very sly game with uh, geopolitical actors in Africa. And in this here, specifically I'm referencing the United States and the UK and uh, later on the EU. So uh, Museveni has played a very sly game with the US and the EU, uh, positioning himself, positioning himself and Uganda as a key actor in the stabilization of the Eastern African region. And this ties back to, you may remember that Rwanda had uh, one of the worst crises, uh, the gen- genocide in 1994. And then, yeah, and, and then, uh, then shortly after that, there was the uh, very serious crisis in Somalia. If you watch the movie Black Hawk Down, you might know uh, there was some profound, uh, some serious issues with uh, stabilization of the Somalia country by the US uh, forces in Somalia. And Museveni comes around that time is when Museveni then gets into the picture and he says, hey, I am going to be your front man. Uh, Make Mm. sure that we stabilize the region in Somalia, we stabilize Rwanda. And by extension, around that time also is when Mobutu Seseko leaves uh, DRC. And what is not published, what is, and if it is published, it is not talked about frequently enough, is that the exit of Mobutu Seseko from uh, presidency of Congo uh, led to a short uh, presidency of Joseph Kabila, uh, Lore Kabila, sorry. And then after that, there was a massive crisis, there was a massive war which killed about uh, 5 million Africans uh, through starvation. And at the heart of it, was these different African countries. We're not talking about foreign companies and foreign interests. We're talking about different African countries fighting over the resources of Congo. Mm. (laughs) I get where you're going. (laughs) Okay. Mm. And Museveni played a key role in that. He was a key actor in that drama. 
And all this was from the fact that he presented himself to people who had the money and the equipment. Hey, I am representing African interests. Yeah. I am Pan-African. Mm. Okay. At the same time, what's happening in Uganda is a brutal crackdown on dissent. Okay. If you dare yeah. speak up against Museveni, uh, the elections, the elections in Uganda are practically a fast now that they get overruled and you get no, I mean, they, they don't get, get overturned. Sorry, that's my Kenyanness speaking. Uh, they, the, the, the elections, uh, they happen and the opponents get, you know, take the case to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, hey, there were irregularities in these elections, but either way, we are going to let the election stand. Mm. No one is denying, no one is denying, if I should say this, no one is denying that there are problems with those who claim are pan-Africanists. My question to you is, do you agree with the ideology of pan-Africanism? The people who say they are pan-Africanists, they, they are no saints. You know, they're, you know, I think there was a comment on that page that we were both part of uh, someone saying Kwame Nkrumah's um, only crime was that he was a socialist and, you know, his, his, uh, his policies did not end up working a lot well for, for, for Ghana. There is obviously a lot of hypocrisy amongst those who call themselves pan-Africanists, right? And I think that that is what you're rightly addressing. It should be addressed. But would you also not agree with the, the original intent of it that, okay, if we share uh, a concern, if you and I have a particular issue, right? And we both come together under very clear, you know, uh, 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 stipulations and a very clear statutes and say, this is how we're going to address this problem. The, do you not think there's a, there's a benefit to that? Putting away all the hypocrisy of, of you know, those who claim to be Pan-Africanists and what they actually do and wh- what they actually practice. So I will begin by answering the question I'd asked you earlier. I'd asked you a question, did Pan-Africanism invent geopolitics? And my answer is it did not. Before African thinkers and African authors brought themselves together and say, let us bring ourselves together because that is the only way to counter the force of this uh, uh, exploitative force. There had been, before they came onto the picture, there had been geopolitical imperatives both in the African context and in the global context. Can you give an example of the African context? So the African context, I would have to refer you specifically to Isaac Samuel. I discovered him, I think, several months ago. and It would he, be interesting to find out those I'm going that to give existed you, I'm going before. to give you one or two examples. I'm going to give you yeah. one or two examples. But for the ultimate authority, I think, uh, Isaac, this is just... Uh, That's uh, his field. <laughs> so I have... Uh, there's an example, for, uh, the example, first of all, of uh, the, the um, sultans in the East African coast. Okay, the Mm Sultans of the East African coast is where you have this uh, these Arabian settlers. So they came in from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, settled on the coast of East Africa, and they through the the trade uh, firstly through the the quite number of skirmishes on the east on the coast of East Africa. Uh, But after the skirmishes, then there was a great deal of trade, and to organize themselves to organize the territory as well, they, they realized that hey. Uh, we need to set up a political infrastructure, political administration, and they had political administrations that 
uh, went all the way up to Mombasa and mm. covered Mombasa and Tanzania and I think even parts of Mozambique. Now, these are people who realize that uh, to, in order to consolidate our trade routes, trade routes are one of the most important uh, yeah. elements, in order to consolidate our trade routes, and in order to also you know, protect our markets, then we, make, we have to get, make sure that we've set up some sort of political administration. And that's how the Sultans came about. To the extent that when the, the British colonized Kenya, they had to set up an agreement with the Sultans because the Sultans at that point owned the East African coast. Owned, that is. And the people, and they had, they had already set up a, a, a thriving political administration there. So the, yeah. the British had to had to pay them off and say, hey, uh, we are going to take over Kenya, but here is the money we're going to pay you for the trouble of letting go of this territory. Let's come, come to West Africa. Mm-hmm. West Africa, the, the example that comes to mind, uh, Mansa Musa. When you talk yeah. about Mansa Musa, all right? Yeah. And his, his, his very controversial legacy yeah. of simultaneously being the wealthiest person that ever lived mm-hmm. and also being a great slave owner. Uh, owning a, a great number of African slaves. Yes. And you, you, if you look at, uh, well, the little history that I have uh, uh, consumed of both him and of the empires before him, was that these were leaders, these were political actors and political agents who were constantly trying to expand their territory. They're constantly figuring out, okay, uh, which allies do we need to align with in order yeah. to consolidate the power within our territory? And whom do we need to conquer? Going even back to the, the history of slavery, you know, you, you would know that uh, one of the most important reasons uh, between, uh, behind the thriving of slavery was the, uh, con- the conflict between various African chiefs. Because yeah. African chiefs then would raid their neighbors and you know, capture slaves and then take them to the slave traders. So the only problem, the only mistake that those African chiefs made, in my opinion, is that it never ever occurred to them to ask, okay, hold on, Slave business is very profitable, and that's good. That's good. But why do these people need so many slaves? And what if we got together, rather than just fighting amongst ourselves, what if we got together and figured out, hey, let's find out where the slaves are going. And uh, wherever they are going and whatever they're going to do, let's get a slice of the action there as well. Mm. I love these examples you're given, Isaac, but I genuinely think it pales in comparison to what was happening across the continent you know this was mass slavery happening across different countries colonization happening across and i feel i feel very strongly that this was to a greater extent and you know we can agree or disagree that you know people were partnering before or after pan-africanism i think that is not the essence of it i think that the essence of it is that there was one thing that we were all going through and if we we're all going to come together and and work together you know that there is much benefit to that but i will not try to i will not try to convince you to agree with me on on this issue i'll i'll like to make your last statement on this and we can attack uh, t- we can t- touch on our other things that i really wanted us to to talk on okay uh I, i'm not also not trying to uh get you to abandon your arguments or convince you that's not at all what, <laughs> right and, and I, I mentioned this i mentioned this in person when i talked about uh, I connected the absence of a calculus of African thought and talked about the poverty of healthy debate. Yeah, yeah. Because I draw again my examples from science. Science does not, well, science, you can, someone, you can make the, the argument that 
science develops through consensus, but I would make the argument that science develops even further through conflict. <laughs> As someone sits down and looks at, uh, I mean, Isaac Newton and uh, uh, Johannes Kepler and uh, Albert Einstein, the reason they stand out is because the thesis they laid out disagreed with the previous uh, uh, arguments that had been laid out before, okay? And they said, no, this does actually does not add up. And then they gave very well-constructed arguments for why what, what they presented as their thesis was a superior option to what existed before. Mm. In many African contexts, I don't know if you have experienced this, but for my own context, in my own context, my, my experience has been that conflict, especially in debates, is completely frowned upon. And there is this, there is this uh, 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 fetish for harmony through consensus. So that, no, we do not want contestation. We do not want people yeah. to say, no, 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 no. Let's come together as one thing. Let's come together <laughs> and be united as one thing. Yeah. You're only going to come, come together as one thing that is wrong. <laughs> right, right. I, I would I definitely agree with you that we there there's more debate that needs to be done on you know things that seem conventional or we should we should all agree automatically. You know, it's been said for a very long time, so we should all just agree to it. But yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Let's let's have more debates on those things. Let's talk a bit about um something that I, I read about, you know, when I was preparing for for this this chat was how people that live or black americans let me put it that way that because that's that's what they like to be called now i'm told i'm told these are essentially people whose whose ancestors you know left african descent uh african african countries and you know migrated or not migrated were were slaves were moved as slaves to uh the americas right and it's become interesting because some of them the conversation is goes this way that some of them do not feel that they have any identity towards you know the african continent why are some you know who have come to visit through initiatives like the year of return that was held in ghana i think in 2019 are beginning to say you know they identify more with with the african region and something that was said by um i think his name is uh alden young so according to alden young who's an assistant professor of african american studies at ucla uh he said that contemporary afro pessimists, intellectuals see no shared identity that can serve as a basis for solidarity between Africans and African-Americans. He says that this, uh, he argues, is because Afro-pessimists insist on the particularity of enslavement in the Americas and reject the equation of struggles of a permanent minority with anti-colonial nationalism in Africa and Asia. So basically they're saying that, you know, or my understanding, what I picked from that is what we went through is different from what you, those of you who stayed back in Africa went through. So when we talk about this solidarity of, you know, black Americans come back home, it's, it's too glamorized and it doesn't have any effect on them. So, uh, so to speak, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. What, 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 what do you think about that? <laughs> uh, well, it's very funny that you, you, you raise that as a follow-up because uh, it's almost as if the previous conversation has not ended. Now, <laughs> I know <laughs> because this is exact like it's almost like the logical continuation of what we were mm. just talking about uh, a few minutes ago and I'm going to answer it in two parts uh, the first part I'm going to ask you uh, if you are familiar with the history of Liberia not so much uh, 
And then secondly, I'm going to uh, discuss a little bit uh, some elements of psychology and uh, how it works and how it doesn't work. So, or at least uh, the way I understand it and the way consensus has constructed it to be at this moment in time. So Liberia is a very interesting case study in, should I say, Pan-African solidarity, because it was formed by, uh, forget the name of the movement, but it was a movement for liberating slaves from America. And it was quite selfish. Its construction was quite, quite selfish because the movement that, uh, the, the organization that led to the founding of Liberia was partly uh, interested in, um, part of the reason why they did that is because they, they were uncomfortable with the idea of freed slaves in America being treated the same as white citizens. So they were like, okay, we acknowledge that slavery is bad. Yeah. So we, we want, we're going to do away with that. We're going to contribute to doing away with that. But we also don't think that blacks belong here. <laughs> let's, find, let's find a territory for them back, in, back home where they came from, where they can, we'll set them free. We'll assist them with some finances. We'll assist them with networks. We will do what they need. We'll help them with what they need to get started. But we will leave the business of the liberation and the administration and the, and the government. We leave that business to them. They are to do what they choose, what they please to do. Yeah. Which is a complex analysis. I mean, it's, it's a complex uh, uh, context, but it makes sense on many levels. It makes a lot of sense. At least it did for me. What did not make sense is what happened afterwards, okay? Because what happened after that is that they, so they had from the beginning, from the very get-go, from the very construction of Liberia, they had a democracy. I, I'm using quotes for those listening in the podcast. Yeah. So they had a democracy and they had frequent elections every four years. So yeah. you have you know, people getting in and you lose elections and give up, give up power. The next person comes in and win elections, they stay on. And on and on and on and on and on and on and back and forth and back and forth. And that continued. And it was an unbroken chain for decades. I think uh, starting around 1850, mm. it was an unbroken chain leading all the way up to around 1980 when uh, there was a civil war in Liberia. And how the civil war developed is basically that, so this expatriates, these African-American expatriates who came to settle in Liberia, set up a clique amongst themselves to ensure that power in Liberia would only flow to the African-Americans who, the settlers, <laughs> and they call themselves American Liberians. Right. And the indigenous communities that they found there there was active and continuing effort to keep them subjugated and and keep the, and make sure they keep on playing a peripheral role in Liberia's politics, to the extent that one of the most vicious of their rules was that if a parent, if a family, if a, an indigenous family, as they call them, sends their children to school, then they will be forced to cut off links with that child. Wow. Because we do not want a scenario to develop where that child, once they become part of our communities, understands how power works, understands how our environment works, and then goes back to the indigenous community to teach them the tricks of the trade. 
this happened, this went on for so long and, and, and continued so uh, uh, viciously that at some point, uh, they, uh, one of the, some, there was a, a political actor who blew the whistle on Liberia. This is around 1920. Right. And they invited the United States, said, hey, come and look at your ally, because that's, at that time, the Liberia had always been an ally of the United States all, all day from its beginning. Come, come and look at what your ally is doing. And they, they set up a commission. This, at that time, it was the League of Nations, before the United Nations had reformed. So they sent some representatives from the League of Nations who came in and investigated what, how the political administration worked in Liberia. And they discovered that not only was there active discrimination and all these uh, nasty tactics that were being used to keep the indigenous communities at the periphery, but there was also active slavery. Right. There were actually cases where government employees and government actors would imprison and force uh, indigenous people to contribute to projects, to construct projects, to con contribute their labor without payment. And so from that, then that resulted, so the, a lot of changes that came from that commission, they forced, started to force Liberia to come up. The most damning indictment of uh, Liberia and that experiment was given by uh, a gentleman they call the, the father of Liberia. I think his name was uh, William Tubman. And William Tubman, in his analysis of what had happened to Liberia, he said that, in fact, it would have been better for Liberia to be colonized because if Liberia had been colonized, then part, the responsibility on the part of the colony would have been, or of the colonizer, would have been to set up a proper administrative infrastructure. Because in the process of them needing to exploit the land, they would have needed to, you know, to set up railways, they would have needed to set up schools, they would have needed to set up roads, they would have needed to set up health facilities all over the territory. Because with those, it's easier to extract resources from the community. But it, while it's easier for you to extract resources from the community for the people, mm. the benefits for them are much more numerous than this scenario where power is only circulating within a small elite and cannot, and this elite, first of all, has no experience of bureaucracy, has no experience with administrative know-how. I would disagree with that analysis. I, 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 need, I need you to let me conclude this. Eh? <laughs> I'm drawing, I'm, I'm drawing okay. a connection. Okay, go ahead. I'm a connection to the end. This sense of, uh, uh, how do I even uh, place this? I think I would, I would even be at, 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 at uh, I, would, I would be at, I would be, I'd be accurate for me to use uh, this schizophrenic, this schizophrenic arrangement, you know, where you have people who look, I mean, have it show your, your skin color. Yeah. And the and uh, fundamentally, the idea around uh, the formation of Liberia should have identified with the fate of indigenous Liberians, but that did not happen to be the course of history in Liberia. Played out in full in 1980. I think there's a clip on YouTube. You can check it out. Uh, the the throwout of the uh, the overthrow of of the the president, the William Talbot, in 1980. A few months before they were overthrown, the, the, the son of the president actually gave an interview in which he sat, he sat very comfortable and very pretty. And he was talking about how they govern Liberia and how well they have done for the people and how well they've done for the community. And in fact, the next thing for them is they are thinking about how do they come up now with a United States of Africa? So that's what, so that's, that's, that was their most important concern at that moment. 
barely two months after that, a coup that kills everybody from that ruling family. And that son himself, uh, he was thrown, I think he was thrown out of a helicopter. This man who had ambitions of ruling Africa. Because, and that's because there was this fundamental disconnect between the reality of what they had done and the image in their heads of what, who they were and who, what they represented. Mm. So I gave you, I gave you a term, I gave you a term for uh, dollars and math. So I'm going yeah. to give you an, a term for the other side. And it's an unflattering one, but uh, it's, I, I, I hope, uh, so there, there are two cases. In, in one sense, it, it, there's a way you could look at it as sensible. And there's a way that it is unflattering, which describes the Liberian case. And uh, it's actually just quoting from a famous song. I don't know if it's, it's as, as famous in uh, Ghana and UK as it is here. Uh, vibes and inshallah. Oh, vibes and inshallah. <laughs> I've heard it. <laughs> so the corollary to dollars and math is vibes and inshallah, <laughs> which is what the they're called the American Liberians were feeding on. This is what they had constructed. Let, let me let me go back to the original uh, intent of the question. I get what where you're coming from, and I think that is is really interesting for Africans to know that. In the context of Liberia, that actually happened. There was black on black crime, if I should put it that way. But when 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 we're looking at you know people who consider themselves black Americans right now, do you feel that there should be any sort of connection between? Do you think there should be any sort of working together with you know uh, black Americans coming back home in Cotia and um, coming back to identify their with their roots? Do you think there's any? Um, any sort of benefit that could come of that? Those are, those are actually two questions. You frame those as one question, but it's actually two questions. <laughs> Break it down you've as fast as you can. Should, you've asked whether they're should, and then you've asked whether there's any benefit. Refer to it, yeah. Any benefit could accrue. And those are two different questions. Of course, there would be direct benefit. There would be a lot of benefit from collaborating and yes. expanding our footprint. Of course, that's inarguable. Yes. But should they? Should they is much more complex. First mm. of all, who am I? What right do I have to tell them what they should identify with and who they should be? It is a complex situation. I do agree. I do agree. And I think it's, it's much easier for Africans to be very uh, agitated about a situation and say, well, you came from African descent. So why are you, you know, claiming to be more American than African? And, and I know that is a very controversial thing that some Africans would say. Let's, you know, put a pause on that question and, and go forward to the way forward. I think we have talked very much about, you know, what the problem is. And I think one of the things that um, Africans, or to be honest, it's, it's, a, it's a global uh, phenomenon is we talk a lot about situations, but we never really address what the way forward is. From what you said, uh, you know, from what you've read, what do you think should be Africa's strategy going forward? What should be our dollar and math strategy? So first of all, uh, thanks. I think, uh, thanks for hosting me. I think uh, we're going to the close of this uh, interview. I think uh, this has been fascinating. I hope I've made some sense, uh, but now getting to the meat of this, I'd say, first of all, we need to move away from the idea of pan-Africanism mm. to the idea of pan-Africanisms. You have to explain that. I hope I, I hope I get to do that. <laughs> Break okay. it down for us. Because, and this goes back to my criticism uh, of uh, what the problem was when you asked me, is the issue 
you, you gave me with binary options. Is the issue that Pan-Africanism is, is wrong or is it with the people who espouse yeah. Pan-Africanism? And I gave an answer that attempted to break out of that box and said, the issue is bigger More than that, that. Yeah. that, right? Yeah. And it is, and I gave a very long, long detour to explain where, where I was coming from with that. And it's the same case, it's the same uh, conclusion I'm going to come back to now with regards to what should we do with regards to Pan-Africanism. Because the strategy of people allying themselves, I mean, uh, uh, more people coming together uh, is a, that's strictly arithmetic. That's not. It's not difficult. One plus one is bigger than one. Right. That's just that's, that's, that's simple. That, that's uh, what was the name of that famous UK musician? That's simple math. This is a famous guy who told us simple math. That's that's simple math. So it's not. A, it shouldn't be a controversial question whether people should come together and if mm. they identify common interest and you know come together and do it that should not be a controversial question yeah the the real meat of the problem the real question is how how do they come together so that if they come up with one model that makes sense for one community somewhere and it makes sense for them let them be and another community if another community decides that that actually does not work for us they are free to go. So I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. So you see the same, in, in, in a sense, you, the question you asked me replicates the same problem. I'm trying to run away in my own Kenyan context where <laughs> you are being told that you should all come together as one thing. And I'm asking, why should we come together as one thing? What if that one thing is wrong? It doesn't work for you. What if it doesn't work? Then what? Because also strategically, it is a very weak approach to only come to only have one path to power or one path to an, an end game. Because mm-hmm. if then, if your enemy knows that one end game and they just sabotage it, then what happens to you? Yeah. So the solution for me is, and I get back to what I was saying, uh, it has got to be that plurality. Because the the reason why the reason why right. Uh, the, one of the, at least one of the reasons in my hypothesis, one of the reasons why for the African leaders, hypocrisy was inevitable. There is one of the reasons why hypocrisy was inevitable was that Pan-Africanism was so narrowly defined. And when, when, they, when, they, when they got into power, they quickly found out that the ideals that they had been given and the ideas that they had uh, come up with, they do not hold up. When, them, when trying to make sense of how do I run a country now, I have to leave those ideas. But if there had been a, a wider variety of options for how, what, what wider options are there for different strategies and approaches and paths for different African actors to come together and secure common interests, rather than just this, because, and the reason why it was narrow and you, you hold it as a positive thing, but I see it as the Achilles heel. The reason why mm-hmm. Pan-Africanism was so narrow is because it had one common enemy. So all the different thinking, all the machinations had be, to be narrowed down to just conquer this one enemy. But that when, when you conquer that one enemy, as I told you, when te- when, to test people, you give them power. When you conquer that one enemy, now you have a brave new world. And for this brave new world, the options and the models that you have no longer work. 
And now you have no option. You have no option but to be a hypocrite. You have you believed what Pan-Africanism said, but it doesn't work anymore now. And now you have to be a different thing. Right. So hypocrisy is inevitable. Right. Let's end on this note. Uh, what, this this podcast is mainly uh, targeted at young Africans, and you know we have said a lot today. Well, mostly you. <laughs> which i well, they told no. me they told me that that was the purpose of coming on this podcast yes yes so it. yes that, that, that's that 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 was that is definitely we wanted we wanted to hear you so yes but i'll i'll if if you know if you know if you uh let me put you in, 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 in uh let me put you in this context if you were minister for for youth, I don't know if, if, if in Canada there's a minister for, but in Ghana we do have a, a youth uh, ministry. What what would be your message to young Africans? If, if yes, I'd like us to end on that note. Just two quick points. Yes. The world is your oyster. Hence, the need for you to explore the world and find alliances and find points of uh, business of operation that are bigger than the village you are born in. That's not an option. You have to do that. You have to claim the world as your oyster. That's inevitable. Okay. Mm. And then secondly, do it in the way that makes sense to you and find, and that's to the individual, do it in the way that makes sense to you and to the community. I'd say, I would need to see as many different approaches to it as they as that can exist right so it's not the the geopolitics of it is there is no question that there is power in numbers there is strategic value in getting a bigger base than the one that you you started out with there is that there's no question about that the strategic fault is when we try to insist that there's only one way of doing it or one way of getting it right right and that's how you then get leaders putting themselves in themselves in a fix where they said one thing and that thing doesn't work and they have to keep on coming up with new ways to make to force that thing to work when it no longer works right i mean that and that requires you to be very bold as well to move out of the narrative if if you've got 55 countries going in one direction and you say i'm going to be the one that says you know um for example the afcfta does not work for me that that makes you the the odd one out but hey you know, there's a price to pay if, if you're going to be the one to be the bold one. Um, uh, sorry, an addendum, a peer post. <laughs> the, it, it just occurred to me as you were responding to this and as you were saying this, that, you know, part of the issue, part of the reason behind the claimer for uniformity might even be the communist roots of uh, Pan-Africanism. Because I think you're aware mm. that Pan-Africanism ha- had to have communist roots because... Yeah. They were fighting against a colonizer who was a capitalist, right? Yes. And yes. the 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 Achilles heel for uh, communist uh, 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 framework and communist thinking is that you're trying to to choose the winners. You are sent you you mm-hmm. the planner. You're central planning. You're sitting somewhere and you're trying to dictate. This is how it's going to work out. And this mm-hmm. is how it's going to work out. You know, rather than investing in creating a marketplace. Where everyone can thrive. people bring in all the options, all the different options that they want, and all the different options that make sense sense to them, and the one that clearly beats the others in the market will clearly just demonstrate itself. You do not need to mm. stand at the gate and say this is the winner. The winner will show itself. Yes, 
That is an so interesting point we didn't even actually get into. <laughs> Come again? I said that okay. is a very interesting point we didn't actually discuss because what you're saying yeah. is, is quite interesting how uh, most of these African thinkers were Marxist and, you know, took, took that uh, so, uh, socialist part. Uh, but yeah, we do not have time for that. We'll probably have some, a platoon in, in, in the near future. <laughs> so, it's all right. Uh, we, we can synchronize schedules and hopefully, if you will have me, if I haven't completely destroyed your platform. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have, think you have. I don't <laughs> think you have. If I haven't completely flopped as, as a speaker, I'll, I'll be happy to. We can synchronize schedules and make it happen. But yes, Certainly. let's get a marketplace. Let's get an, let's get a marketplace of Pan-Africanism. Hey, thank you so much for staying to the end of this episode. If there was anything that was so helpful on this episode, I would love for you to do two things for me. First, please like, follow, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And two, please share this with another young African you think this will benefit. Or you can just post it on that WhatsApp group you're part of. We are trying to build a community for young Africans here and I would love for you to be part of it and also invite others to join. So thank you and see you next week Monday with another episode. It is very clear that Isaac, you are a capitalist and uh, yeah. that, 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 that is the no, idea. No, 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 that's what I don't like. I didn't want that. <laughs> We'll, we will end this year before we get into another thread of, of I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Now you have made it that I have to defend myself. <laughs> but no, I'm not. Okay, that's what I meant to say, but fine. Uh, well played.